Now I've chosen to go through the second letter of uh, Timothy with you, uh, these uh, times when I'm preaching. And uh, so we'll look at this passage that uh, I read in your hearing, 2 Timothy chapter 4, and we look at the first verse, in the presence of God and of Christ Jesus, who will judge the living and the dead, and in view of his appearing and his kingdom, I give you this charge. Now there's a famous book written by someone called Brother Andrew, called Practicing the Presence of of God. I I found it rather disappointing when I looked at it. I'm not commending it to you, but I I want you to understand something of uh, the presence of God from the verse that I've just read to you. And the first thing I want to say to you is that the Bible's charge to us now to believe and obey the Lord, it comes to us in the presence of God and of Christ Jesus, his Son. God is where his truth is preached and where his people gather in his name. He is there. So let me just break this down for a moment, that God and Christ Jesus are here in the text that I've read to you. See how they are here in the opening words uh, as they introduce to us the Father and his Son. And then Paul can't go very far in this letter to Timothy or in the letters that he writes to anyone without his thoughts and his words turning to Jesus Christ. You see how often Jesus is here in this chapter. For example, if he's thinking about the future and what lies after death, then he doesn't claim, well, nobody knows what's after death. Rather, he speaks very naturally of his hope in the future that Jesus Christ is going to welcome him and give him a crown of righteousness. Verse 8, the Lord is going to give me, Lord Jesus is going to give me a crown. He says, that's his hope. Or when he considers the great harm that someone has done to him, he doesn't plot any revenge. I'll get him. He doesn't want uh, Timothy to send vigilantes to harm him, to overcome his evil by their evil. He simply says very shortly, verse 14, the Lord Jesus, he will repay him for what he has done. Or when he speaks of times when he's been very, very alone, when all the church seemed to have deserted him, he says, verse 17, but the Lord Jesus stood by me, and he gave me strength, and that's his abiding hope for the future. He says in verse 18, the Lord Jesus will rescue me from every evil attack and bring me safely into his heavenly kingdom. To him be glory forever and ever. Amen. What a mighty Lord he is. And his closing words to Timothy are found in this longing for Timothy at the very end of the chapter. The Lord Jesus be with your spirit. To have the Lord with you is to have everything. Not to have him is is to have nothing. What does it profit? 
you if you gain the whole world and you don't have God the Son. May your spirit and the spirit of Jesus Christ be wed together. May you be one in your life in him. I'm saying it doesn't take very long then for Paul to go back to Jesus Christ, whether he's talking about enemies or bad experiences or hopes for the future. He's talking about Jesus Christ. Every one of his thoughts is bound captive to him. He looks at the past and he says, goodness and mercy followed me all the days of my life. And he looks at the future and he says, and I will dwell in the house of the Lord Jesus Christ forever and ever. He doesn't say, I've been very lucky. You can understand what he was thinking when he said, for to me to live is Christ. And then to die is gain. Uh, Do we know anything of that? William Cooper has a a hymn we love to sing. Sometimes a light surprises the Christian while he sings. And you know, um, there's a phrase in, in that hymn. In holy contemplation, we sweetly then pursue the theme of God's salvation and find it ever new. That's what he says. Well, do you know something of holy contemplation? Or are you too busy watching television or reading the paper to think about God? When professing Christians have nothing to do and nothing to think about, do do their minds gravitate? Is there a camber in their thinking that takes them to Jesus Christ. I think, what would I do without the Lord? How good he's been to me. How can I serve him better now, tonight and tomorrow? And our minds are, are full of Jesus Christ. Packer, J.I. Packer, is the master of the forward ever since uh, 58 years ago. He wrote the forward to John Owen's Death of Death. And everyone read that forward, even if they didn't read the book then. Um, He's written the foreword to a new book, and it's called Knowing Christ by Mark Jones. And he uh, interlocks with the readers in the foreword, commending this book to them. Do you have the habit of contemplating Jesus? Allowing scripture passage after scripture passage to show you his many-sided glory. Do you cultivate his presence? The one who took the place of his brethren under the unimaginable, horrific reality of divine retribution for our sins. Do we often make a point of telling ourselves and telling him how lost we would be without him? Do we constantly acknowledge the presence of Christ, who through the Holy Spirit keeps his promise to be with us and never to leave us? That's what Packer says in that uh, new Banner of Truth book, Knowing Christ. I'm pointing out to you then uh, that the Lord Jesus is here. He's here in the text that I've read to you, that I'm explaining to you this morning, in the first verse of 2 Timothy 4. 
And then again and again, he jumps up at us from the passage of Scripture there in chapter 4. Half a dozen times he's there. And the second thing I want to say is that he is here in our meeting at this moment. You know, Jesus said those familiar words, everybody everybody knows them, but we're not captured by the wonder of them and the reality of them as we should. Where two or three are gathered together in his name, I am there. I am there. I am there. In their midst, Jesus, the Son of God, is here with us now. Now that is not simply a a statement of his omnipresence. That is, there is nowhere in the cosmos, in space or time, where the Lord is not. That's true. But that's not what this promise is saying. Of course it's true what the psalmist says. If I go up to the heavens, you are there. If I make my bed in the depths, you are there. If I rise on the wings of the dawn, if I settle on the far side of the sea, even there, your hand will guide me. Your right hand will hold me fast. The inescapable Jesus Christ, God the creator and sustainer of everything, is unavoidable. All mankind then, all of careless, sin-loving Aberystwyth is uh, living and moving and having their being in God. But that is not what Jesus was saying when he said uh, he'll be with us always, uh, even to the end of the age. He'll never leave us, but he'll never forsake us. He's speaking of his presence as our friend. He's speaking of his presence as our teacher, as our shepherd king protecting us, as the Lamb of God, as our great high priest who obtains forgiveness for us moment by moment from his Father. He's with us like the good Samaritan then, who was there and he came alongside the victim to help him. He's there like uh, Jesus was in Samaria and sat at the well and spoke to a woman and told her all things that ever he did. And she she said, surely this is the Christ, this is the Messiah. He is here uh, as the one who walked on the road to Emmaus. And he he comes and uh, he walks alongside us and he asks us, why are you cast down? And he opens up scripture to us and uh, he lifts our spirits and makes our heart burn within us. He is here like the one who rebuked the Pharisees and called them whitewashed sepulchres. And an nest of vipers. He is here like the one who made a whip and said, you turned my father's house into a den of thieves and drove them out of the temple. The righteous one, the holy one, the caring and loving one. He's here because we've met together in his name. The Christ of the Gospels, uh, who is present with us in this scripture, is present with us now because we haven't met to discuss the European Union or to discuss the Welsh rugby team 
or, or to discuss strike action or some cultural purpose, but we are meeting in his name. That's our only motive in coming here this Sunday morning. It's because our relationship with that name, because, oh, how we love the Savior's name, because we want all the world to know this name, because we gather to hail the power of Jesus' name, because in our ears, how sweet the name of Jesus sounds. It's the magnet. Uh, We've said, where will there be a place when we visit uh, Mid-Wales, where Jesus Christ will be honoured and magnified? We want to be there on Sunday morning. It's... uh, the focus of our faith and our hope. It it puts the rest of the week right and lifts our spirits, calms our fears. We gather in his name. And he reminds us then of what happens when we gather in his name. That though we might have had a bad week and we are doubting whether we are Christians and we are feeling far from religious this morning. We are feeling rather cold and, and detached from other people. And rather distant. In spite of our spiritual inertness. Our moribund condition. He's made it his promise that he'll be there. If everyone in the congregation is like that. But they've met because of the name. He's there. He's there in the midst. He's there to meet with us. To bless us by encouraging us. To teach us. To rebuke us. To save us. He's here as the Lamb of God to again renew us and take away our sins. If we confess our sins, he's faithful and just to forgive us our sins. He's leading us. He's clothing us with his armor. He's the one. He is the one who is present here, though all the great and good of Aberystwyth are not here. And we behave in our relationships here and we speak to one another and we think holy thoughts as those conscious. The Lord knows me. The Lord knows everything about me. He knows the distractions and the guilt and the shame I brought with me. And he knows. But he's here. He's here. What a privilege to know his presence. Think of it. The the awesome son of God of Matthew and Mark and Luke and John, the epistles, this, the God of the, of the Bible, he's here. Our Lord is with us today. And uh, he's here to become our friend. Let me take and adapt these familiar words. I love to read them. Words of James Allen Francis. He was born in an obscure village. Child of a peasant woman. He worked in a carpenter's shop until he was 30. Then for three years he was an itinerant preacher. Never wrote a book. Never held an office. Never had a family. Never owned a house. Never went to college. Never traveled more than 200 miles from the place where he was born. He never did any of the things that usually accompany greatness. He had no credentials but himself. He was only 33 when the tide of public opinion 
turned against him. His friends ran away. He was nailed to a cross between two thieves. When he was dead, he was laying in a borrowed grave through the pity of a friend. He rose from the dead on the third day and appeared to the apostles often. He did this for 40 days. He met hundreds of his disciples. Women were the first people to see him resurrected. Men and women, young and old, boys and girls, listened to what the risen Christ said. They had meals with him. Breakfast by the beach. They touched him. He wasn't a ghost. Twenty centuries have come and gone. And today he stands as the central figure in the human race. I'm far within the mark when I say that all the armies that ever marched, all the bombs that ever exploded, all the navies that ever sailed, all the parliaments that ever sat, all the kings and tyrants that ever reigned, all the composers and authors who completed works of art, put together have not affected the life of man on earth like this solitary life. And this morning, he is here. He is here with us. As we have gathered in his name. He's not here because of the tingle factor. Not because you have more goosebumps than you had in the car coming here but simply because he loves his people. And he loves to meet with them. And he's preparing a place for them. And he keeps his word to us. And sometimes the intensity and preciousness of his presence is uplifting. And some of our best memories, looking back, are times when we felt how near he was when we were teenagers in a camp and we heard a particularly helpful sermon. Why do people find that their burdens are lifted when they come here? Well, because the wonderful counsellor, the Lord Jesus, is here. Why are people saved in this little chapel? Because Jesus is here. Why do favoured people grow in hunger for truth and in understanding the Bible when they come here because of the presence of Jesus. Why are so few here? And thousands refuse to come. In fact, they would rather be dead than come here because Jesus is here. And they're thinking, we will not have this man rule over us they live in enmity against God and they, they won't come to a place where his name is exalted and loved. It's like perfume poured forth. He's worshipped. They'd give a hundred excuses for not being here before they'd say, well, it's my enmity. That's, that's, why, I, that's why I don't come. I don't want to come to be with him. Someone mentioned to the late Kingsley Amos, the novelist, that he didn't believe in God. And uh, Amos erupted 
It's not that I don't believe in him. I hate him, he said. Now you see the consequence of, uh, of Jesus being present with two or three uh, gathered in his name. If today in Sydney, Australia, and in Hong Kong, and Siberia, in Cairo, and Salt Lake City, in St. Petersburg, in Siberia, Mexico City, Blanifestinyog, at this very moment there are people that are gathered in his name, some behind closed doors, some with vast congregations. And Jesus is with them. This, this Christ who is with us is with them. He's with them. He's with them in grace. He's there to help. He's there to change. He's there to give strength and comfort and correction and instruction in righteousness. It's not below the dignity of the living God before whom the angels bow and hide their eyes to come. Here, where sinners have gathered and he comes alongside us and he walks the aisles and he sits alongside you and he nudges you and he opens your ears and he stirs up your sluggish heart and he illuminates your mind and he gives you life and the Holy Spirit comes more powerfully. He says that woman needs conviction. That man needs comfort. And he's there and he's working with us when we gather in his name. I am presenting to you not a distant God. Not an unknowable God. You see in this text how close but separate are God and Jesus Christ. Did you notice that? In the presence of God and of Christ Jesus. What does it remind you of? It reminds me of the opening words of John's Gospel. In the beginning was the Word. And the Word was with God. And the Word was God. There is withness in God. God is Father and God is Son. And if Jesus Christ is everywhere, from the Arctic to the Antarctic, from the Eastern Hemisphere to the Western Hemisphere, if there's no place where he's not, where his people gather together, then he is God, isn't he? Only God can be everywhere in grace. He is God towards God. He is God with God. He is God alongside God. He is God in God. Where Christ is, God is. Where God is, then Christ is there also in heaven, in earth, in the pit. There is never the presence of God without the presence of Christ. As he said, I and my Father are one. They are one only, but they are one in their being. You remember how the early church used this Greek word, homo usios, homo, the same, usios, being. They are the same being. They're not two different beings. Two different persons, three different persons, Father, Son, Holy Spirit, three different persons, but one being, one living and true God. Hear, O Israel, the Lord, your God is one Lord. 
Father alone is the Father. The Son alone is the Son. The Holy Spirit alone is sent by the Father and by the Son. They're not three beings, but they are three persons. And so, God is with us. God our Father is with us. And Christ Jesus, our Savior, is with us. So here we have a letter from an apostle of Jesus Christ. And he is writing in the presence of God. And it is the breath of the Spirit that he is writing. And so you have a Trinitarian presentation of the living God here in this passage. And he is charging Timothy and every one of us through this letter. You believe certain things. I want you to believe that. I want this letter to be read out and for it to be heeded and memorized and obeyed. And to have certain hopes and views of God. So Paul is uh, writing this letter and he's quite conscious that all the authority of God is behind him as he puts quill to parchment or to papyrus and as he writes this letter to Timothy that God is directing what he should say that God is in this process that there will be he didn't realize this but that there would be in 2,000 years time on the west coast of the United Kingdom there would be a little town and a little church and they would need to hear the words that he was writing to Timothy then. So, um, this is coming to you, he says to Timothy. Um, This is coming to you in the presence of God and of Christ Jesus. My charge to you is, has that behind it? You know how important it is then if... uh, There's a certain authority behind a message that you have. Uh, There's no authority behind some messages. You're driving along in the car, you're going over Plinlimon, and you go around a bend, and there's a a man there, and he's hitchhiking. And you look at him, and you're a woman, and you're in the car by yourself, and he doesn't look a very disreputable man, and you decide not to stop. My husband wouldn't like me to stop. You know that, and you drive by, because he has no authority. To make you stop. But you go on two or three miles. You get in near Llangirig. And you go around a bend. And there is a policeman. And you stop straight away. When he tells you to stop. Because he has all the authority of the law of the land. Behind him. So when we gather in the name. Of Jesus Christ and of God. And we receive a charge. Then there is an authority behind that charge which is God the Father and God the Son and God the Holy Spirit that is the authority behind our text heaven is in everything that you read in scripture Jesus Christ is in everything that you read on all the pages. You find him there. That is the reason why he spoke to two flagging, weak, despondent disciples on the road to Emmaus. And he called them fools and slow of heart. Because all the scripture spoke of resurrection. 
The Old Testament scriptures, Job said, For I know that my Redeemer liveth, that the worms destroy this body, yet in my flesh I shall see God. I shall see him, not another. God won't allow his Holy One to see corruption. He won't let him rot, he said. Didn't God raise the widow of Shunammite's son when the prophet lay upon him and breathed into him and he sneezed and sneezed? Didn't Jesus tell them, I must be betrayed and crucified, but the third day I will rise. That phrase, the third day, again and again. And they were fools and slow of heart because they had a word from God in the scriptures of the Old Testament on the lips of Jesus. Now in the new covenant ages it was dawning. And they were foolish and slow of heart to believe what he had said. The words that come to us every Sunday here come crashing like a wave with all of divine heavenly authority behind them. Well, let's move on and let's see more briefly now. Secondly, that the Bible's charge to us to believe and obey comes from someone who one day we'll meet as our judge. And that's what he says. The first verse. In the presence of God and of Christ Jesus, who will judge the living and the dead? The quick and the dead. There's a longing in every heart in Aberystwyth for justice to be done in this world. A child is abducted and raped and murdered and the culprit is never discovered. There's a longing in the grieving parents for justice to be done. For the murderer, the rapist, to be discovered and condemned for what he did. Who knows what other children will be spared and arrested if he is taken and judged, why should other parents needlessly go through what they've gone through? An old person, uh, uh, there's a phone call and they say it's the bank and they want her now to transfer because there's been a little difficulty. Transfer her money to a certain account and they give her the number and she then, in her innocence, transfers all her life savings into the account of a thief. And we want evil men like that to meet justice for such wickedness, don't we? A bomb is planted on a plane and hundreds die. Families, children, your daughter, your son. And oh, we long to find out who did it, that he might be arrested and judged for the iniquity. There is in the heart of every man and woman a natural longing for justice because we are made in God's image and likeness. God isn't indifferent. He's not Buddha contemplating his navel and just with a wry smile on his face looking at the folly of men and women. Here's a God who hurts, who is touched by the feeling of wickedness and guilt and shame. And he looks down. He hates iniquity. He's moved by the weeping of the rape victim. And the murderer, he's angry. He wants justice to be done. 
And so we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ. Because this is a moral universe in which we live. And there will be no miscarriages of justice there. All the facts will be known. All the factors will be brought into consideration. All the pressures you were, that were brought to bear upon you. The strength of the temptation that you endured. Your loneliness and your guilt. It, it will all be brought into consideration. The judge of all the earth, he will do right. No, will, no one will go from the heavenly courtroom and complain that there's been a mistrial. That they want to appeal to a higher, better, juster, more merciful court than they have been to. His judgments are righteous, his judgments are fair. And every judgment Jesus makes, he makes with a full approval of God. There's no tension between father and son. No argument at all. What does the Lord Jesus speak? Uh, Of what Paul is writing here about judging the living and the dead. He says, many will say to me on that day, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and in your name drive out demons and perform many miracles? Then I will say to them plainly, I never knew you. Away from me, you evildoers. That's Jesus. Jesus said that. Loving Jesus, that's not a quote from the Old Testament. It doesn't come from the Koran. It comes from the lips of our Savior. Again, when the Son of Man comes in his glory and all the angels with him, he will sit on his throne in heavenly glory. All the nations will be gathered before him and he will separate the people one from another. As a shepherd separates the sheep from the goats, he will put the sheep on his right and the goats on his left. There is a bifurcation of humanity. A division Jesus will make. Two destinies of mankind. Two only. An eternal parting of the ways. A fork in the road that goes from the throne of judgment. Days of testing, days of probation in this earthly world have come to an end. And Jesus is very anxious for me and all who believe in the apostolic message to preach this to all the world. Is it? Uh, is it your experience when you travel around and you go to other pulpits that you, you hear of this? This greatest event? This unavoidable event that lies before us? Do we, do we hear about it? Jesus said, Acts 10.42 Preach unto the people and testify that this is he who is ordained of God to be the judge of the living and the dead. what Jesus said. I must tell you what Jesus said, mustn't I? That's what you expect, demand from me. I'm not smarter than him. I'm not holier. I'm not more loving. I'm more merciful than incarnate grace. Don't you see how mighty glad we Christians are that the judge in that great day will be the Savior who loved us and took our sin in his own body and wouldn't end the enfleshment until all our guilt and shame had been dealt with. 
But that's why he came into the world. For God sent not his Son into the world to condemn the world, but that the world through him might be saved. You know, the children sing a song, he did not come to judge the world, he did not come to blame. He did not only come to seek, it was to save he came. And when we call him Savior, we call him by his name. So what will you need if you are to face what Paul speaks of here, what we will all face, divine judgment? Well, you will need an advocate. You will need a mediator. You will need someone who speaks up on your behalf. And he will say, oh, I, I, loved, I loved her. I loved him. They were on my heart always, ever since... Father, you gave them to me before the foundation of the world. I came into the world for them. I lived for them. I died for them. I took their judgment. I bore all their guilt away. The judge of all the earth will be the Savior who gave himself for us. His righteousness to cover our unrighteousness. He who tells us to forgive 70 times 7 has forgiven us 70 billion times 70 billion of every sin. All our clever sins. All our sins of omission. We must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ to receive justice and to receive vindication for things we've been wrongly accused of, for a bad reputation that we were wrongly given. They hung us. They drew and quartered us. They burned us at the stake. They said the man is a heretic and he's in hell. The day of judgment, everything will be sorted out, won't it? So I'm saying to you, make sure you are going to the throne of judgment with a saviour. With someone who will speak up for you. Someone who is not ashamed to say, uh, these are my brothers. He will give you a free and full justification. None can lay anything to your charge because it's been laid already to the charge of Jesus Christ. And so there's now no condemnation. You, you see, you need an, an advocate. You, do you see that? You will need a mediator. Do you see it? If you were appearing in some court, somebody had trumped up some charges against you and had got a lawyer in to present it to the court of what you were alleged to have done, wouldn't you then want a good lawyer? One you could trust? One who would speak for you? Wouldn't you want that? Of course you would. I am telling you of a lovely advocate. Jesus, the sinner's friend, he will speak. The one who preached the Sermon on the Mount, he will speak. He will speak. The one who is present with you to, with us today, he, he will speak. The third thing I want you to see is that the Bible's charge to us to believe and obey comes from one who will appear and establish his kingdom. That's what our text says, doesn't it? Verse 1, in view of his appearing and his kingdom, I give you this charge. That was 
Paul's hope. He looked forward to the future. Look forward now, 2017 and 2018 and the rest of this 21st century. He's looking forward. And it's going to end. It's going to end with Christ's return. That wasn't how Bertrand Russell saw the future, was it? Bertrand Russell said, Man's origin, his growth, his hopes and fears, his loves and his beliefs are but the outcome of accidental collocations of atoms. That no fire, no heroism, no intensity of thought and feeling can preserve individual life beyond the grave. That all the labors of the ages, all the devotion, all the inspiration, all the noonday brightness of human genius are destined to extinction in the vast death of the solar system. And the whole temple of man's achievement must inevitably be buried beneath the debris of a universe in ruins. All these things, if not quite beyond dispute, are yet so nearly certain that no philosophy that rejects them can hope to stand. Only within the scaffolding of these truths, only on the firm foundation of unyielding despair, can the soul's habitation henceforth be safely built. Bertrand and Russell. We come from an accidental collocation of atoms. Chance, luck. That's what the atheist says. We're heading for extinction in the vast death of the solar system. And seeing the universe in ruins and confronted with unyielding despair. <laughs> That's what he says. And here's Paul then. We bring Paul on. And Paul is living in hope. And it's a hope that the greatest man who ever lived isn't a bundle of um, a drying bones, sun-bleached and dusted under the Syrian sky. But uh, he lives at the right hand of God. And he said, And I will come again and take you unto myself, that where I am, there you may be also. We'll see him again. We'll be with him. We'll be like him. We'll be glorified together with him. If we are joined to him by faith, we shall gaze at him You know, we won't have to go looking for him in that great day. Amongst the millions that will be there, all the, the sheep. And, uh, will he look? Oh, he'll look for us and find us. He's come to seek and to save that which was lost. He's not going to lose us on that great day. Ever since his father gave us to him before the foundation of the earth I will lose none he says and our eyes at last shall see him through his own redeeming love for that child so weak and helpless is our Lord in heaven above not in that Poor lowly stable with the oxen standing by, we shall see him. But in heaven, set at God's right hand on high. Head that once was crowned with thorns, is crowned with God's glory now. 
and he's going to appear. That's what Paul says. At his appearing, he's going to appear. Every eye shall see. He will come again. Not in humiliation. But he will come. And he will set up his kingdom. And that's where the world is going to end. It's not going to end where Bertrand Russell says it's going to end. But according to the words of him who says, I am the truth, it will end in him coming. And his smile of recognition and his welcome. He will come in his might and majesty and glory and all his holy angels with him. The saviour of this vast company. He'll raise them up and he'll gather them together. Not one empty place at the marriage feast of the Lamb. We'll all be there. I give you this charge. In the presence of God and of Christ Jesus who will judge the living and the dead and in view of his appearing and his kingdom turn away now from this wretched unbelief deal with it you deal with it now you take it to God and dump it at the foot of the cross go to Jesus and say I'm sorry I've played around with unbelief for too long and entrust yourself it's a movement of your heart as the Spirit of God takes the word that you've heard and he applies it to you and you're given strength by the Spirit through the word to trust in Jesus Christ only for salvation. Confess your sin to him. Cry mightily to him that he'll become your Savior. And you, you keep, keep praying, keep asking until you know that he has answered you I charge you to do this in the presence of God and of Christ Jesus. Amen. Lord, bless your word to us, we pray. Holy Spirit, come upon the word that would magnify Christ now in changed lives and in stronger Christian lives in all of us. Do us good in your mercy and lead us and make us more thankful, more grateful men and women for the privilege of gathering where thou art in our midst. We take thee with us and never, never stop thinking with much thankfulness of all we owe to thee for what you've done for sinners. Accept our praise and worship in Jesus' name. Amen.